How many of you, while we're singing that song, are thinking to yourself, you know, Ruth could have wrote those lyrics, but she wouldn't have wrote them in chapter 1. She wouldn't have wrote them in chapter 2. By the end of tonight, she'd she'd start maybe penning those words, and uh, certainly by... uh, Next week, you know, when that song talks about with every step, and I'm, I'm imagining Ruth thinking back on her journey with Naomi from Moab all the way back to Bethlehem and all the steps that they took and you know, just uh, moving in that unknown and having no idea that God is with them and orchestrating all these details out in their life the whole time. But then as his, his presence in their life starts to be revealed, in the same way it happens for me and you, in the same way, that we walk and then there's these moments where we look back and we see God was with us and all the things he was doing in our life all along the way when we felt so vulnerable or so afraid or so... Uh, concerned or so uncertain or unstable or whatever it is and we see in the rearview mirror the goodness of God walking with us and helping us. Let's pray and ask God's help tonight as we look at this chapter. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the book of Ruth. What a gift she is to us. Lord, how wonderful and amazing will it be to one day meet her sit and talk to her and fellowship with Boaz and just listen to them tell about these incredible things that they experienced, Lord. We we thank you for sharing this wonderful truth with us. We thank you for how you, through the power of your Spirit, use it to teach us so much. And even tonight, there's so many things that you desire for us to see that maybe we wouldn't glean if we were just reading through it, but God, by just taking time and breathing it in, all that you have for us, we thank you for it in advance. We pray you give us ears to hear and that the Lord Jesus would be glorified. In his name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to catch up a little bit. Uh, Chapter 1, we had, here we go. Chapter 1, we saw Ruth, the book of Ruth, was, was a story of hopelessness. There is nothing but pain setting the stage in chapter 1. But once we move past that hopelessness through the process of seeing starving families that felt forced to move away, fathers and husbands who died, no babies were born, a mother and two daughters who were all widows or left to fend for themselves, you think, how can this ever work out for good? If ever there was a Uh, a picture that was painted circumstantially for a group of people, uh, for Ruth, Naomi, and Orpah. It was doomsday. But then when we got to chapter 2, we saw that God's invisible hand is revealed as working in countless ways to bring about His plan of redemption for Ruth and Naomi. And we began to see how God was using this story to 
to give us a glimpse of the Lord Jesus. We started seeing these redemptive elements start to come out of this story, and it really starts to captivate our heart. What was unyielding suffering? God transforms into grace upon grace. For Ruth, for Naomi, for Boaz, and ultimately for everyone who would trust in Jesus. And so this unyielding suffering gives way to grace. We begin to to see that there's something on the horizon. And by the end of chapter 2, hope begins to dawn. It begins to dawn for Naomi and for Ruth. And now tonight, what I want you to, to focus on is the big power of a little hope. It only takes a little hope, just a little hope, to make all the difference in the world in our lives. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 3, Ruth. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women were you were with, Is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you should notice the place where he lies. And you should go in, uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. Now, the struggles of life that had Naomi bitter and in a state of depression had prevented her from dreaming or planning or doing anything. God uses Naomi in the book of Ruth to teach us so many practical things about the way our hearts respond when we suffer, about how we view suffering in our lives. And really, it has, a, it has a great deal of uh, help for us with regards to being bitter or even facing depression because we see that she begins to sink into this darkness. Remember, when they were in Moab, when we were first introduced to these ladies, Naomi was working in the field. She was a hard-working woman who was out uh, you know, working and doing whatever she could. Now, we know she's in top shape because they... Her and Ruth made this excruciating journey alone all the way from Moab to uh, Bethlehem. But then when they get to Bethlehem, when Ruth goes out and begins to glean in the fields, where's Naomi? She's at home. She doesn't go. You almost get the sense, if you think back on last week, Naomi can't seem to get herself out of bed. So Ruth says... Well, I'm going to go glean in the fields because somebody's got to do something or we're going to starve to death. Naomi can't seem to put one foot in front of the other. She's just completely defeated. You see, without a little hope, you easily become a victim. And victims never see beyond the moment. See, you have to be very, very careful about assigning uh, the the tag victim to yourself, allowing yourself to uh, absorb the role of victim. Because when you become a victim, you get 
blinded by the moment. You can't see beyond the moment. All you can see is what has victimized you. And what you don't understand is you're missing all the other things around you. It's not to say that what has victimized you is not important or not significant or not challenging or meaningful. Or I'm not diminishing that in any way. I'm just simply saying that I, I rarely use the term victim because it is a very... Uh, debilitating term to use. Victims don't see past the moment. If you know anyone who has a victim mentality, then you know that they stay fixated on something. And when you stay fixated on something, you're blinded to all the things that are going on around you. Now, without hope for the future, without vision for what could be, without dreams... There is no action. You see, Naomi is in a state of immobility. She, she, she doesn't move. She doesn't do anything. You know and I know. We encounter people who just, they just don't, there's no action in their life. They don't do anything. And here's why. Because let's, let's uh, be realistic. When you don't have any hope, when you feel like everything you do is just going to fail, when nothing's going to make a difference, when the harder you try, you never seem to get anywhere, you take one step forward and two steps backwards, guess what you do? You just quit. And you just stop. And there you are. And God created us to be people who have hope, people who have vision, people who dream. And we take action. Now remember last week, one of the, the central things that God showed us last week is that grace comes to people through what? Action. Remember I said grace doesn't fall out of the sky into the laps of people who need it? Grace didn't fall out of the sky into your lap. Someone took action. And the gospel took root and, and the grace of God began to move in your life through action. Somehow, some way, it never fails. Action. And when there's no action... You see, grace doesn't move. It doesn't move that way. So what happens is there's no action. There's only management. All we're doing is managing day to day, and we have this survivalist mentality that is unpleasant, uninspiring, and uneventful. You ever been in a season of your life where you're just surviving? You're just existing. It's just all you can do to get through the day that's before you. I think a lot of you in this room, a lot of us have experienced those times, and they're very, very difficult times. And you know there's nothing pleasant about them. There's certainly nothing inspiring about them. And there's nothing eventful because there's no action. And so I just think that if we just, if we just skip over Naomi, look at all of the, the, the wonderful teaching things that we'll miss. This chapter teaches us that there is great power in a little light, a little dream, and a little hope. You know, there's a reason why if you go over to that uh, youth building, that wonderful facility over there that is used to make such a tremendous difference in so many teenagers' lives over the years... That pretty much everywhere you can plaster Jeremiah 29, 11, it's there. There's a reason why that verse is 25 feet long across the wall of the sanctuary. 
It's not just randomly chosen. Because it didn't take me long to figure out that what teenagers need is they need a little light. They need a little dream. They need a little hope. That's what they need. They need to realize that in, in this awkward situation in their life where they feel powerless. You know, they're, they're old enough to make decisions, but yet they still are under the authority of somebody. And so they're, they're in this in-between thing. And, and, they're, you know, and so when, when things that they can't control are always oppressing them, they feel like. And so they're in school all day and they're being oppressed in school. And then they're at home, they're being oppressed. They're always told what to do, how to do it, and so on and so forth. And so, you, you know, if you're not careful, I started realizing that... that Teenagers, oftentimes, they lose hope. So I would sit down. I would listen. I do this all the time. I listen to people who are hurting. I listen to them tell me their story. I listen as they talk about their hurts and their pains and their circumstances and their situations. I listen to all of it. And I take it all in. And I look them straight in the eye. But before we end the conversation, I just plant a little seed of hope. Just a little seed of hope in the soil of their heart. And just leave it there. Because, because I know it won't be in that moment, but it'll be in the moments that follow. After I leave, they'll think about it. They'll think about what I said. They'll think that little hope will begin to dawn. That you know what? It, it won't always be the way it is. And that in God, there's always hope. There's always hope. Naomi identifies Boaz as a relative. She explains his role as a kinsman redeemer. Now, Ruth obviously has no clue what a kinsman redeemer is. She's a Moabite. How would she? What would have ever brought this conversation up while uh, they were living in Moab? Nothing. Although she was married to a Hebrew man... There would have been no reason for them to have a conversation about such an obscure law that's recorded in Leviticus 24. Why would they have ever talked about it? There's no reason. She she doesn't have any idea about it. And so, but Naomi knows and Naomi realizes. And so Naomi begins to... uh, begin to explain it to her. I'm sure the best that she can. Let me explain it to you the best that I can. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to God's law, has the privilege or responsibility, not just the responsibility, the privilege or the responsibility to act for a relative who is in trouble, danger, or in need of vindication. I put the scriptures there for you to go and look those up if you're interested in this and to realize that there's a lot more to a kinsman redeemer than what we see between Boaz and Ruth. That a kinsman redeemer, God makes provision through this kinsman redeemer law to where if, if there's a person in the family that becomes impoverished because they and, and had to sell themselves into slavery and they're still alive, a kinsman redeemer can redeem them out of slavery. There's a provision for a kinsman redeemer to be able to redeem land that's been in the family for a long time that because of bad circumstances had to be sold in order to, uh, you know, to survive. And the, the kinsman redeemer can re Uh, acquire that property to restore it back to the family so it's not just in death it's in a multitude of ways it could even be in a legal setting after a person dies a kinsman redeemer can receive restitution on behalf of the deceased 
So there's, it, it, it just, the reason I tell you all this is not to bore you with meaningless details, but to, to show you what a loving, caring, beautiful father we have that takes the time. And here's the thing, for decades and generations, people thought, well, what is that law for? Who needs it? We don't know how often it was implemented, but we know this. This is where we see it in Scripture. So if, it's, if we don't see it other places, it probably wasn't something that a lot of people knew about and a lot of people utilized, but God put it there. He put it there. And He knew that in this moment, it was going to come to bear on these circumstances. And it just goes to show you how God uses little things. And everything that God does and everything that God says is for a reason, is important, and matters. And so built into the law. Now, think about this is hope for those who lose everything. In other words, think about God in His sovereignty and His authority and His power. God can prevent whatever He wants to prevent. He can do anything He wants to do. But what He does is He builds into His law provision so that He can through the law, bring hope into someone's life who loses everything. Now, why is that better than preventing them from losing everything in the first place? Come on, class. It takes faith and it leads to glory. You see, it takes, how do you, how do you implement the law? You obey it. And why do you obey the law? Because you have faith in God, right? And so through obedience, God's blessing comes through obedience. Didn't many of you memorize that not long ago? God's the rewarder of those who do what? Diligently seek Him. You see? So you obey God and His blessing comes upon you. And so it's built into his law. And even with God's law in place, Naomi's plan to get Boaz to marry Ruth is way radical. It's crazy. Now, Boaz, I'm not going to get ahead of myself because there's some details that are going to come to light in a few minutes. And some of you already know the story very well. But Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. But even in that, this plan to spruce yourself up, put on a fancy dress, go to the, you know, get your hair fixed, wear your best perfume, and go down to the threshing floor, which is a public place, which is where everyone who is a landowner would be to guard all of their, uh, all of their wheat and barley after the harvest season. So, uh, you know, it's a bold plan. I mean, it's radical. It's super risky. It takes a whole lot of guts to think this up, to suggest it, and then a whole lot of guts to listen to it and go, okay, I, I think I'll do that. I mean, these two are, which just shows you the power of hope in Naomi's life that she dreams this plan up. I mean, to say it's a long shot, there are so many things that could go horribly wrong with this plan here's the principle knowing that God is sovereign does not mean that we don't make plans nothing frustrates me more than when somebody misunderstands the sovereignty of God into thinking that 
you don't make plans. Well, if God is sovereign, then it really doesn't matter what I do because he's going to do what he's going to do. So why do I need to do anything? Why don't I just let him do what he's going to do and it'll all just work out? (laughs) Wrong. No, that's not at all what the sovereignty of God does. In fact, the sovereignty of God is the opposite. It is the reverse of that craziness that I just explained to you. It is the opposite. On the contrary, the sovereignty of God will make us make radical plans for Him. You see, the fact that God is sovereign should, should first of all, function in your life as a, as a peace-bearing reality. It ought to bring peace into your life, and then it ought to make you radical in a multitude of ways as you live out your faith. You see, the fact that God is sovereign is what drives me to pray prayers that are radical prayers, to to dream dreams that are radical dreams, to ask God for things that are audacious and grandiose because, God, you're sovereign. This is the problem with, with maybe intellectually understanding the sovereignty of God and then just somehow spiritually or theologically missing the whole point so often people pray wimpy small pathetic prayers to a god that they intellectually claim they know is sovereign for example people have a tendency Uh, let's say when they have small children and they pray for their small children and they look at this little toddler and they say, God, I pray for my daughter. I pray for my son. I pray that you would watch over them. I pray that you'd keep them healthy. I pray that you would, you know, whatever. I pray that, you know, we'd be a... Uh, a good family. I pray that they grow up and love you. I pray that they, and there's nothing wrong with that, but really? God is sovereign, and that's what you're praying. I'm praying, God, take this little child and grow him up to change the world. I pray, God, use this little girl that's running around in diapers right now. God, raise her up that she might stand in stadiums with with thousands upon thousands of people and proclaim your gospel to them. God, raise this little young man up that he might be uh, an evangelist that leads millions of people to you. God, raise these children up to change the very face of the earth. God, you're sovereign. You can do that, God. You see, no dream is too big to dream if God is sovereign. No prayer is too big to pray. Why do we pray these silly little prayers as if the best God can muster is to keep little Johnny healthy? He can keep Johnny healthy without even thinking about it. Why don't we dream big? Why don't we pray things like, God, Use me. Use me as a tool for your glory. God, do things that are impossible to do. This is what I told the group Wednesday night. I say, every single week, I have the privilege of praying with a man in our church. And this is what he prays. He has a grandson who is not walking with the Lord. 
He's not in church. And every single week, we pray together, and this is what he prays. He gets to his grandson, and he says, Lord, I pray that you'll make him a pastor. And I pray that he will, he will be a person who harnesses your word and that you use for your glory and that he leads people to faith in you and that he's a shepherd to a, a, a flock. And he's not even in church. You understand? That's the sovereignty of God. And if that sounds weird to you, you don't understand what sovereignty is. Naomi and Ruth are giving you the illustration of, of how to approach God. This is radical. It is absolutely, utterly radical, this plan. And you know why they're doing this? Because now they're realizing that in all of these situations that have led them to this moment, they're, they're, the light's coming on. They're going, you know what? I think God's been with us. I think God's been with us. I think, wow, God was with us when I, well, God was with me when I got divorced. God was with me when, when my spouse died. God was with me when the phone rang and the doctor said, you have cancer. God was with me. You see? And he can do anything. So why don't we pray like we believe that he can? I get excited. I just think about, I think about all those days that me and Ann and Amanda would meet and we'd talk about Rescue 100 before anybody believed in it. I mean, nobody believed in that. Nobody. But we did. But nobody else did. It was crazy. And everybody I talked to, it's just crazy. It's never going to, it's too much pure. I mean, you can't change it. All this has been in plan. I mean, it was just the same thing every time. But we, what? And I just think back on times where we would pray, God, you could do this. And, and, and somehow I knew that they believed that God could do it. And they knew that I believed that God could do it. And we just refused to believe anything other than that. You see, yes, is it crazy? Is it radical? But hey, look at the God we serve. So let's don't pray little. Please don't pray those prayers. Don't do that anymore. Don't do that. Pray boldly. Ask God for crazy things. He likes it. He likes it. It makes him smile. That's not in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure about it. All right. Radical plans for God are some of the most inspiring, hope-filled things that there are. And whether they're for individuals or they're for families, they're for churches. You know, that's what, that's what makes your heart beat. That's what, that's what lights you up. My goodness. I mean, I, it, maybe it's just the way I'm wired. But the, the thought, if, if you told me that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing the same thing in the same place with the same people. Nothing was ever going to change. Oh, forget about it. I mean, to me, that is like the worst. I mean, that's just the worst nightmare I can imagine. It's just a nightmare. I can't even think like that. No, no. When I think about 2017, you know, I mean, 
You'd laugh if you knew the prayers I pray, but I don't care. So when crazy things happen in your life, I just smile because I've been praying for it. And I pray for you, and I pray for your kids, and I pray crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And I think I can, I can, I feel like God is smiling at me, and I'm just believing him for radical, crazy stuff. And when you're in a ditch, I don't pray that you just get out of the ditch. I pray that you, like, get out of the ditch in such a way that it's so amazing and so incredible that nobody can even believe what happened. And it just, that's just the way, I mean, he's... He's God. Man, it's so good. All right. So here she risked, Ruth risks everything materially that she has in the world just to get him. I mean, if she goes down there and she nudges up to Boaz... And he gets mad. It's over. If he draws attention to her. Okay, first of all, what if Boaz gets perturbed and says, you know what? Uh, I don't like you. That was rude. That was inappropriate. I mean, it could happen. The guy's pretty straight-laced and walks by the book. We've seen that already. And the relationship severed. Your only source of survival just got cut off. More than that, if he draws attention to what she's done and other people see that, that it could somehow negatively affect his reputation, now you're really in trouble. Not only have you lost a relationship with Boaz, but on top of that, you're now vulnerable because the people who now know, you know, rumors spread, just like rumors spread about, oh, I know who you are. You're the one who came back with Naomi. And they, they know, everyone in the town knows what's going on. So what if they think, oh, she's, you know, like a little harlot that's sneaking up to men late at night. And the, it could be horrible. It could go super bad. Every single thing that she's got going in the world, including her life, is on the line. It's on the line. And it is dangling by a thread. It's a super bold move. Many Christians today don't have the courage to be radical in their faith. No. So oftentimes, we won't risk failure. I'm not going to stand on my usual soapbox here and harp on, the, on our just unbiblical, not God-glorifying fact that we, we have to, our desire for information is just compulsive. But why does this happen? Why do we do this? We do this because we have misplaced hope. We put hope in the wrong places. Now I want us to go back and read verse 6. So when she went down to the threshing floor, she did according to all that her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned to himself and there a woman was lying at his feet so 
you see that she is executing what Naomi had told her to do. So she's going in there and she's realizing. Now, think about what I just said about misplaced hope. And think about how all of what she's doing is dependent on, she's risking all of this for him to gain Boaz, not to gain She's not, listen, she's already getting wheat. It's already been promised to her, right? She has food. She has sustenance. It's not about material things. It's about this relationship, okay? When you take risks in the hope of getting God and not just his stuff, there's no such thing as failure. Well, there you go. There's no such thing as failure. Now, didn't Jesus say, what are you... Do not be anxious. Don't worry about what you should eat or what you should drink or what you should wear because that's what the Gentiles do. Pagans do that. He said, your heavenly Father knows the things you have need of. And then he says, well, we can all quote it. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Don't seek God's stuff. Seek Him. When you seek His stuff, your hope is misplaced. Now, I just want you to, in your mind, I want you to do a little inventory. And I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, but I I think it's a good spiritual exercise. I think everyone should do this on a regular basis. You You should consider, I want you to think about the things you've been praying about. The things you've been talking to God about. Or think about when you talk to God the most and when you talk to God the least. And then I want you to think about what are, what are, what are those things centered around. And, and maybe it's inadvertent. Maybe you don't think about this. But are they directed to and related to things that God can provide? Or are they focused on Him? Because I would say that one of the most popular yet most commonly missed principles in Scripture is Matthew 6.33. I think very few people seek first the kingdom of God. I think what the, the Western Christian does is seek his stuff. We want what God can do for us. We want God to do this and God to do that and God to do this. That's not what he says. And Ruth has given us a picture of this. She doesn't want what Boaz can offer materially. She wants Boaz. Hope in God's word, especially about the law of a redeemer, leads her to take initiative. You see that? She takes initiative and to act on God's promises. Now watch what happens. Look at verse 9. This is really where it gets good. So he says to her, who are you? And Ruth answers, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did did Naomi suggest that she do that? She just deviated from the plan, didn't she? Yeah. Up until that point, she did exactly what Naomi told her to do. But now, what, what are you doing? Well, what do you mean? I'm your maidservant. 
Take me under your wing. That little phrase right there, it's in the Bible three times. And that's it. Once, earlier, when Boaz was describing the way, when he said, don't worry, I've noticed, I know how you have been a blessing to and taken care of your mother-in-law. Remember that? In chapter 2? And he, and he said, you took your mother-in-law under your wing. You cared for her and you protected her. That's the first place the phrase ever shows up in Scripture. This is the second place that it ever shows up in Scripture. The third place it is used is in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is down on the page, where God says, And I passed by you again and saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. God uses that phrase about taking you under my wing. Or under my garment. He uses that about us. That's the way he cares for us. And don't you think that there's a, a, a reason why such an obscure phrase is relegated to Ruth. And the only other place we can get context is where God is talking about his covenant love for you and for me. Boaz used Ruth's same phrase in describing Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Same phrase. And the only other place in Scripture it appears is where God describes his relationship to his people. Ezekiel 16. So, we see this radical plan begin to take shape. Now, this is not about some monetary pleasure or temporal relief. What she's saying is, I want your protection, your love, and your lifelong commitment. You see... How do I know this? Well, I know this for many reasons. Number one, I know this because Ruth has already received all that she needs monetarily from Boaz, hasn't she? She's already, listen, he's already promised her all the grain that she'll need for a year. There's no possible way her and Naomi can eat through all the grain he's promised. So they're, 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 they're going to survive. They... They have means to uh, survive. It's more than that. It's not about survival. Now that they're surviving, guess what? There's a little hope on the horizon. And we move from a survivalist mentality into life and life more abundantly. See, you start to dream. You start to have a vision for what could be and what should be. Things start to change. Her hope in Boaz is so great because, because Ruth realizes without his redemption, she essentially has nothing. Remember last week I talked about, you know, I, I picture Ruth, you know, with this, with this hoodie on and the hoodie pulled way down over her head and she's out there in the field and she's trying not to be noticed and she... You know, she has assumed this posture of this, you know, she's a Moabite. She knows she's a Moabite. Everybody knows that. And so she's, you know, ashamed and she has no confidence in herself. And so she's just trying to, you know, and she's thinking, man, if I can just get through today until somebody sees me. And she's just enduring. But now, 
She's, she's putting it all on the line. She's putting everything out there. And she's saying, listen, remember I said relief is not enough. We need more than relief. We need redemption. Remember that conversation? You don't need relief. You need redemption. And she's realized, I've got relief, but it's not enough. If he doesn't redeem me, I have nothing. See, this is what true hope looks like in Jesus. True hope in Jesus is, if Jesus, if you don't save me, I got nothing. You see, you can't come to Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus? You're better. Life in you is better than life apart from you, so I'm going to choose life in you. That doesn't work with God. There's no salvation in that. There's a lot of lost people in the church that believe that, but that's not the case. The only way that you can come to Jesus is you have to come to Jesus with the realization that, you know what, if you don't save me, I got nothing. All of my eggs are in this basket. Everything that I know and understand about the world in which I live in is centered on you. If you don't save me, I'm done. There's no plan B. You're the only way. You're the only one. You see, this is what she sees. It, it makes me excited to think about it. You see, when, when I see somebody come to God with a big need, they got a big need, and they have big hope, and they come to a big God, and he does big things, man, I get excited. Verse 10, then, then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, Boaz is just, is he not spectacular? This guy, man, is something. For you have not shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after the young men, whether poor or rich. You see, he's, he sees this non-materialistic uh, view. He realizes, he's telling you, he's teaching us how much she's risking. He sees that. Verse 11, he says, and now, my daughter, do not fear. She's, I mean, hey, it's all on the line here. I will do for you all that you request for all the people of my own town know that you're a virtuous woman. But it's a risk for you to be laying down here at midnight on this floor. Verse 12, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform that duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning. Now look at what he does. So she arose before one could recognize her, again, because it's dangerous. And then he said, do not let it be known that, the woman came, that a woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. So essentially what happens is she goes walking uh, before dawn, before people could recognize what was going on. She appears to be someone who's just coming back from the threshing floor. Now, it is true that people would recognize her and, and know that she wouldn't have the, the, the capital means, the financial means necessary to buy that type of 
grain. But here's the thing. I picture her with this shawl so bursting with grain that she looks like the Grinch that stole Christmas as she's lugging this thing back. And she's got all this grain. And Boaz is just being careful that he protects her. And that, that no one thinks bad of her. And that everything is done on the up and up. And he informs her. He, he first tells her that he's going to do this. But then he informs her, I'm not the first in line. You see, there's more than one kinsman redeemer in a clan. A clan can be a bunch of people. And so there's multiple kinsman redeemers in a clan. And, and whichever kinsman redeemer is closest to you is the one who would first have opportunity. Remember, I said it's not an obligation. It's an opportunity or it's a privilege or an obligation, you know, an opportunity. And so the closest one gets the first decision whether they want to or not. And here's the thing. It's not, it's not like you would just automatically say, yes, I would do it because it's costly. It's, it's, sacrificial to redeem somebody. You, you're taking on responsibility. I mean, think of Boaz. Why is he even having this conversation? How many people are walking around who have everything they need for themselves? They're, they're working their own little kingdom, building their own kingdom, getting all the things that they need to operate there, to, to, to build their household, to raise their family, to do their kids, to do their thing. They're not worried about some random person out there that needs something. How many people are willing to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, in the midst of all these responsibilities and things that I have, that I've worked hard and I've been responsible and I've been blessed by God and I've got all the things that I need, but I'm going to sacrifice all that to take you on. You know anybody doing that? I think we got a church full of them. You never met a lost person that does that. Isn't that what Christians do? We don't build our own kingdom. We build his kingdom. And so what we see here is we see Boaz. Boaz doesn't need Ruth. Boaz, what does Boaz have to gain? This is nothing but cost for Boaz. This is nothing but heartache for Boaz. This is nothing but, but it's sacrifice for Boaz. I'm suddenly reminded of one who is sitting in heaven and has everything that anyone could ever want. Why in the world? This is what the angels are saying. You're going to do what? You're going to, wait a minute, hold on a second. Before the first Christmas ever came, trust me, there was a huge meeting and all the angels were like, wait a minute, you're going where? You're going how? Now, when he said, hey, I'm going, I'm going to earth, I'm going to be among the people, that didn't freak them out. Because they're thinking, well, hey, I mean, he can just, you know, ride a lightning bolt down there and like, you know, burst the sky open and everything can blow up into flames. And he can, but when he said, I'm going to be one of them, they went, uh, what? My mind is just blown. You have everything and you're going to sacrifice it for people that you don't even need. You don't need them. You don't need them. Boaz doesn't need Ruth. Name me one thing that Boaz needs that Ruth can provide. Nothing. 
And what exactly when you came to the cross did you bring to Jesus? Nothing. You see the picture? It's a good one. So his response is just as radical as her request. He is, I mean, this whole thing is radical. If there's ever a picture of the sovereignty of God, it's in this all this going on. My goodness, it's just amazing. But then, there appears to be a little hiccup in this plan. He's not the closest one. And so Boaz tells her that there's another man. There's another redeemer. There's someone else closer. He reports there's another man. And we see a glimpse again. Every time Boaz acts or speaks, it is, it is a perfect display of God-honoring character. Okay? Look at, look at, look at this. We see the actions of Boaz are not driven by personal preference. That's what I love about this. Boaz is such a wonderful shadow of Jesus in the way that he acts and responds. He does everything the right way. He always puts others before himself. He is sacrificial in every way. I mean, it's just amazing at the way he responds. He has respect for the law of God, and he's not willing to compromise God's word, even if he can justify the blessing that it would appear to create. Listen, how many times do people compromise what God has said because in their human mind, they go, can't you see all the good this is going to do? Can't you see the blessing this is going to be? Can't you see that this is going to be helpful and good and productive and all? And listen, no one cares about that. Let me give you the best advice I know how. In every single circumstance that you face in your life, here's what you need to do. Exactly what the Bible says. Don't don't negotiate with God. Don't manufacture loopholes. Don't try to scoot around the edge. Don't do that. Do what Boaz does. Follow the law. And when it makes no sense to you, and when you can't see how it's going to work, and when it seems completely irrelevant and out of touch, that's when you know you're in the right spot for God to do something great. Don't ever make an appointment to come talk to your pastor and think that he's going to tell you all these things that he thinks about whatever it is you're wanting to talk about because I'm not. I'm going to tell you everything that I know about God's word about whatever it is you want to talk about. That's all I got. That's all I need. We don't need human opinion. We don't need to know about anything else. Just do what God says. It works every single time time it'll never fail you so the goal of both Ruth and Boaz is redemption you see they got the both they got the same goal so much so that they risk their own comfort their own plans and their own happiness for what is a picture of the gospel see everyone is risking here now the difference for us is is that now as new covenant believers as people who are born in the church age when we come to the cross we're motivated by the fact that God has already done, right? What he's already done. So there's, the, 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 there, there's no risk 
to speak of. He's already done it. We're not, we're not in this old covenant picture of Boaz and Ruth where they're, you know, putting their comfort and plans and happiness on the line. Listen, we hear the gospel and it's, God's already done all that. He did all that. He did all that. For you, he did that. He'll receive you. He'll save you. He'll redeem you. Yes. Look at verse 16. So when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, so here she comes, you know, the Grinch with all this grain. She comes dragging in. And she, so her mother-in-law says, is that you, my daughter? Like, you left out of here dressed up like you were going to the prom, and you came back with a big, giant, you know, shawl full of grain. And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, this is Naomi speaking, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Oh. Okay. So in the last verse of chapter 3, we're reminded, it reminds us that faith in God's providence sometimes means that we act and sometimes means that we don't. You see, what Naomi has been calling Ruth to do the whole time we've been looking at this chapter is for her to act in this radical way. You need to act, you need to act, you need to act. And then what? And now she says, you need to wait. You need to sit. You need to be still. Now let me tell you what waiting and being still and sitting. It's not being lazy. It's not killing time. It's not being fearful. It's not, none of that is, is biblical waiting. No. Biblical waiting is doing all that you can do and then waiting for God to do what only He can do. But you don't do that until, you're, until you know, you've, you've acted. You've, you've went in faith. You see, in the beginning of the chapter, driven by renewed hope, Naomi seized the opportunity and instructed Ruth to act. You see that? But now, she tells her to wait. So let's look at this quickly. Sometimes... Acting for the Lord is the hardest and most radical thing we must do in the moment. It's hard. It can be scary. It can be daunting. Sometimes waiting on the Lord is the hardest and most radical thing we can do. So in conclusion... At first glance, it appears that we have a love story between a young widow and a man. That's what it looks like on the outside. But what's ultimately revealed is a love story that pictures God and his people. It's a picture of the gospel. I want you to notice the motivations of each character. I try to bring these characters back and just continually focus on these characters so we can see. First of all, Naomi is not obligated to find Ruth a husband. It's not her job. She's not obligated to do that. Why is she even worried about all this? Listen, she's back in her hometown. She's got family around there. It's not her... It's just not her obligation. 
On the other hand, Ruth is not obligated to follow her radical plan. Listen, it would have been totally sensible. In fact, if, if, if a human would have breathed out this story, it would have went down like this. And Naomi said to Ruth, you know what you need to do? Go put on your best dress, get your hair, go down to the beauty salon, get your hair fixed up, get your makeup done, get everything ready like it's your wedding day, put all this perfume on, and then roll on down there to the threshing floor. And Ruth would have said, you have lost your mind. I ain't doing that. That's what would have been if a human would have wrote this. She, she has, well, why would she follow this plan? Boaz is not obligated to marry Ruth. So now we have three characters all acting in specific ways, pointing towards redemption, and no one's obligated to do it. I don't know what your story is, but let's just pretend for a second that I do. I'm pretty sure it went something like this. Somebody who wasn't obligated invited you to come to church, or somebody who wasn't obligated told you about Jesus, or somebody who wasn't obligated did something that began to springboard grace into your life. And then guess what you did? You some, Somewhere along the line, you came to a church that you weren't obligated to attend, and you heard a gospel from somebody who wasn't obligated to tell you, and then you met a God who wasn't obligated to save you. Isn't that how it happened? I'm pretty sure that's how it happened. And yet look at us. Here we are. You see the, the beauty, the picture of this, the gospel coming forth here? What do we learn about how God relates to us? Oh, goodness. God loves us, though he's not obligated by anything outside of himself to do so. Do you know what motivates, you know what obligates God? Himself. He's motivated to this grand redemptive story. The reason he's saving us, the reason why he's doing all that he's doing, is is simply in his character. He's motivated by him. There's no external force motivating him whatsoever. It's beautiful. What do we learn about how we relate to God? Well, we don't obey God out of fear of what he might do to us if we don't. Now, sometimes people do, but that's really a misunderstanding of the fear of God. To fear God rightly is to reverence God. But when you obey God simply motivated by what he might do if you don't, You're missing the relational point there. The promise of the gospel, the unconditional, undeserved, willful love of Jesus Christ changes our motivation. We do the things that we do for a completely new reason now, don't we? Think about how crazy you all are. Just think about it. You're all nuts, you know that? You're nuts. What are you doing? When I drive home tonight, I'm going to pull into my little cul-de-sac and I'm going to drive into my neighborhood and I'm going to pass house after house after house. Do you know what? And, and there's going to be cars in the driveway and they're going to be doing their Sunday evening routine. And what are you freakazoids doing? How come you're not home watching a ball game or having a barbecue? Or do- what are you doing here? I mean, 
Come on, don't you work hard Monday through Friday? You finally got a day off. You finally got, you know, yesterday you spent all day with your kids at the soccer field. Now you got a day to sleep in and to have to yourself and look at you. No wonder they think you're weird. Because your motivations have changed. You see, it's not weird to you, but how do you explain it to someone else? Well, <laughs> I'm new. I'm different. I'm, I mean, it's just different. I gladly and willfully serve God because that's what unconditional, undeserved, willful love does. The love of God, it motivates us towards a love for God. You see, you will never have a love for God. You will never have a love for God until you first walk through the door of the love of God. You have to walk through the love of God to develop a love for God, to experience a love for God. It's a process. The love of God welcomed you and ushered you into the cross. And as you passed from death to life, you, became, you walked into a relationship where you were surrounded by a love for God. But it didn't start that way. How do I know that? Because you can't love someone you don't know. But when you know him. And then finally, a love for God, it moves us to live radically, give generously, and love graciously. And look, chapter 4 is yet to come. It just rains like Blessings from heaven coming down out of the book of Ruth. It's so good to us, so, so good to us. I hope that you just take all this in. I hope you think about the things that we've talked about tonight. And I hope, it, I hope you just meditate on them. And it just, it just causes you to respond to the sovereignty of God in a new and a fresh way. To examine your motivations and ask yourself, am I, am I motivated for God first? And not for things he can do and provide. And then think about the love for God. Think about how it was the love of God that ushered you in. And how once you, once you met him and knew him and were born again into a relationship with him. It changed into a love for him.